0: Welcome to Ludded Lopate at Large. I'm Ludded Lopate. Although medicine is one of the most respected professions in this country, it also has the highest suicide rate. A shocking new documentary by Robin Simon called Do No Harm examines how our system of medical training with its culture of bullying and sleep deprivation has led many doctors to burn out and, in a shocking number of cases, take their own lives. It's currently available on Amazon Prime Video, and I'm very pleased to welcome Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Robin Simon to our show now. Hi.
1: Hi, Leonard. So nice to be with you. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: Oh, I, I, I wish I could say my pleasure, but this is such a disturbing film. Uh, yeah. You you've made TV and film documentaries on a wide variety of topics. What what brought this particular issue to your attention?
1: Well, I was finishing up a documentary film on transgender rights, couldn't be a more different topic. Yes. Um this uh, senior citizen who hides from the law as a woman and then makes it permanent. And then someone sent me an article about these two young doctors, residents, who jumped from the roofs of their hospitals within a week of each other. And I have doctors in my family know somewhat how rigorous it is you know, going through medical training. And I just couldn't walk my head around why these brilliant young doctors would think that the logical solution to their problems was to jump. And it just set me off on this mission to not only find out why this was happening, but why it was covered up.
0: And was this before the news reports of doctors committing suicide during the COVID-19 pandemic? Or uh, had you already started thinking about this film before the pandemic began?
1: Oh, yeah. This was back in 2014. And since then, there has been some more media attention, but I started researching back in 2014 when it was really covered up. And in, in fact, it was so difficult to find medical students and doctors to participate in the documentary because there there's such fear of uh, retaliation if you come forward and speak about what's happening. So, yeah, this has been going on for decades. And since COVID-19, what we're seeing is that the PTSD that a lot of these doctors are experiencing and will experience for months and years to come, it's only going to increase the burnout and suicide rate.
0: Retaliation from whom?
1: retaliation if you're a medical student the retaliation is from you know the dean and the school itself there's such competition to get into the schools that you know if there's a sign that you're a troublemaker uh you you'll be out um when you start your residency there's such competition to get into residency you'll be out if you have a personality conflict or you report that you're being bullied or and when you become a practicing physician you have to be relicensed every year and if you report that you have any kind of you know mental health issue that you went for counseling it'll show up on your record and you could be put into what's called as a php a physician health program And it could jeopardize your career. And why do they do it at the hospitals? Well, there's a great fear of litigation. So Mm -hmm. they want all this information repressed.
0: They've also pressured state legislatures uh, not to address this issue, but we'll get to that later. (laughs) Um, How many Mm -hmm. suicides are we talking about in in a typical year?
1: Well, that's what's interesting, Leonard. When I started researching, the number that was given is about 300 to 400 a year, which is about the size of two medical school classes every year. But as I researched this, I realized this number is woefully underreported, because there is no mechanism to really report. And since The medical schools, the hospitals, and even the families, to some extent, don't want this information out there because of the stigma of mental health. We really don't know what the true number is, but I can tell you, after researching it for six years, I have not met one physician who doesn't know at least one colleague who has died by suicide, and many know multiple who died in medical school, residency, or as a practicing physician.
0: So many of these suicides are classified as deaths from other causes, like accidents?
1: Yes, and because, you know, physicians know medicine as they do, it's easy for them uh, to even cover it up themselves, you know, and or it's listed as, you know, accidental drowning or accidental overdose or... You know, accidentally you know, getting hit by a train, uh, accidentally
0: jumping so, out of a building,
1: <laughs> yeah, accidentally, jumping. those are you know, a little bit more difficult to hide, but it's interesting one one parent who one of the early reports of a suicide by jumping, the family even said to me, i think I think he was just getting some air." and uh, just, and fell by accident, like tricked. I mean, it is, the stigma is just great, especially in, you know, suicide is a problem in general in society, but the suicide um, for physicians, the stigma is even greater.
0: How does uh, the rate in the U.S. compare to other parts of the world?
1: Well, it, uh, it's interesting that in other parts of the world, like for example, in India, they are more likely to report suicide. So we know more about suicides in places like India. They even read, you know, the suicide notes on the evening news. But um, we know it's a problem all over the world, because when we started not only researching it, also having like test screenings, we got so many requests from places like Australia, London, And it didn't even matter if it was socialized medicine or managed care. What the factors that determined the suicide and burnout rate were um, stigma about mental health and sleep sleep deprivation.
0: And, And it applies to medical students and doctors?
1: Yes, yes.
0: You look at the U.S. system of medical training, which relies on a culture of bullying or what's referred to as pimping. (laughs) Now, uh, it's obviously not related to prostitution, but what is it?
1: So pimping is put in my place. Uh, Very common practice where you are humiliated in front of peers and sometimes patients. So imagine since kindergarten, you've been an A student, always priding yourself on, you know, getting the gold stars and being the top of your class. And now you're put into this situation where you're like maybe middle of the road. That's shocking enough to the system. But then to be publicly humiliated for something that you're, you're just learning. You may not even learn. A lot of times when they do the pimping, it's stuff that was so you know left field that you know nobody should know it but they do it for the purpose of humiliating and the people that do it are the senior residents or attending physicians it, it's it's a culture these are you know physicians who have been pimped themselves so they finally you know you know move up the rung to phys- attending physician or senior resident you know they're going to do the same. And what we're trying to do is stop this.
0: But I anger. would want my doctor to have a I, sense know. of, of self confidence. And it seems to me yeah. that uh, these medical professors uh, feel it's necessary to belittle their students and undermine their self confidence.
1: You would think so. But in their minds, it's like we're trying to weed out the weak. So,
0: you know, and they have to be taught humility so that they won't wind up with a God complex as doctors have sometimes been accused of.
1: If you can't hack, you know, being put on the spot and being humiliated, you know, maybe you shouldn't be a doctor after all. Maybe Mm. you're not cut out for this because it's being tough. I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's in no other profession. Do you see, uh, you know, employees being bullied and it's, it's just not acceptable. It's not acceptable in schools. Why should it be acceptable in medicine? And I focused the film on young doctors because look, they're our future. So if this is what they're experiencing in medical training, you know, what kind of foundation is this for when they become practicing physicians and we as patients will have to, deal with this. And for me, you know, look, suicide is a problem in general in society. But when I was able to link what the impact of burnout and physician suicide to patient safety, then for me, this was like a public health crisis that everyone needed to know about. Hmm.
0: Well, another major element of medical training is sleep deprivation is that mostly after medical school during the internship and residency phases of their training
1: no it starts in medical school so just imagine how much medicine has progressed over the years the amount it's like learning a new language and imagine in 5 to 10 years how medic how medicine has developed and evolved so these young med students have to know not only everything that's wrong with the body, but now everything new that there is to diagnose and treat in the same number of years, four years of medical training. So, um, you know, medicine has changed so much, but the training system hasn't changed at all. So they experience sleep deprivation that they've never experience they never knew existed and it has not only emotional effects but also physical effects as in the film you see a resident suffering a seizure and when Uh, she was perfectly healthy before that and when she goes to see the neurologist afterwards the neurologist uh, says oh yeah we see this all the time uh, among residents
0: so, medical residents getting so little sleep that they have seizures uh, seems almost uh, outrageous. So, is this be, how many hours are they required to work per day or per week?
1: Well, there's an interesting history to this. So, early on, uh, there were no regulations about the number of hours because it, the word resident. Meant like you, were, they literally slept in the hospitals, mm. and you know for a certain length of time. But now medicine has evolved that they don't sleep sleep in the hospitals anymore. But there were no regulations in place about how many hours that they could work, so they worked them, you know, like slaves. And it, it, suddenly there was a case in New York, uh, the Libby Zion case where she was the daughter of a a wealthy journalist a wealthy and prominent journalist Uh and she died and it was determined yeah sydney right and it was determined that this resident was in charge was sleep deprived and in charge of 40 patients so it's you know it's it's kind of shocking when people realize, you know, what's going on. So they worked them. So a new regulation was put in place of no more than 80 hours that a resident could work. I mean, 80 hours, just think, you know, most of us work 40 hours, 50 hours a week, 80 hours was the limit. They limited it to 80 hours, but it turns out that none, none of the programs were following this because, you know, they, you know, they wanted to work them. And why are they working them so hard? Well, it turns out, you just follow the money. Residents are cheap labor. Hmm. They're paid, they're, it's funded by the federal government, like $112,000 per resident. And they pay the residents about $40,000 a year. But when you figure out that they're really working upwards of 100 hours plus a week, sometimes not sleeping for 36 hours straight, you know, it's it's pretty much cheap labor. But worse than that is they're set up to fail, and it's patients who wind up suffering as a result.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Robin Simon. Uh, Her latest film, Do No Harm, is currently available on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, Well, you... uh, they they are they're making forty thousand dollars, right? Uh, this is uh, isn't the cost of medical school uh, another factor. How how much are most doctors in debt when they leave the school? Uh, uh, will they be able to pay off that debt on, on forty thousand dollars a year?
1: Right. So what leads to this burnout and the suicide rate is this feeling of being trapped, and the reasons why they feel trapped is. One, they're isolated from their family and friends, sleep deprived, and they also have student debt. So within one year, they're $50,000 in debt. After two years, $200,000. When they leave, they could be three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 in debt. So even if you thought, oh, well, medicine may not be for me, they can't do anything else because how are they gonna pay off $400,000 in debt, and then imagine if you get sued. Uh, you know, you, you feel like you know your life is over. You know, you're better off not here. But of course, you know there are there are solutions, and the first step is bringing it to everyone's attention, so we can unite patients, stakeholders, of policymakers and physicians, uniting to
0: change the system they've already been through 4 years of college 4 years of medical school and then they have to complete their residency how long is that
1: residency is 3 to 7 years uh, depending on your specialty mm-hmm. so imagine you know if you have uh, if you're going for surgery you're going to do a fellowship after a standard 3 year residency program so it's now, does- a long time to be in in uh, training
0: Does the sleep deprivation also cause depression and other mental health problems?
1: Sleep deprivation is directly linked to depression. Uh, Mm -hmm. I interviewed two professors at Harvard University who've done multiple studies about the link between sleep deprivation and depression. So, uh, and what they found, is not only does it lead to depression, severe, we're talking about severe depression, but also impairment. So medical errors, the link between sleep deprivation and medical errors, is there's a direct connection.
0: And you point out that medical error is the third largest cause of death in this country after heart disease and cancer, although it probably is fourth now because of the high COVID-19 death rate.
1: Well, it's estimated that there are more than 200,000 preventable deaths due to medical errors every year. So just, I mean, we're over 200,000 with COVID, but I'm talking every year. And in the film, there's a Senate subcommittee meeting and Senator Bernie Sanders says, that's like two airplanes going down every single day. You know, why isn't this on the front pages of the papers every single day? And um, someone in the industry from Johns Hopkins says, well, because those accidents like, you know, airplane crashes and mining accidents, you know, uh, that that's like a big, big news because it's it's a it's unusual. But medical errors happen one one at a time and in private. And so you don't hear about them, but the families certainly do and suffer from it.
0: Are young doctors and residents the ones who are usually responsible for the, the high percentage of, of medical errors?
1: They are on the front lines of diagnostic care, day-to-day care. It's usually the, you know, the surgeons, they you know come in and do surgery, uh, but it's the diagnostic, It's the, you know, routine things every day that lead to missed, you know, missed diagnoses or, you know, how much uh, insulin or of a drug you're supposed to get. Giving those orders to a nurse, those responsibilities, those orders fall to the frontline residents.
0: And they have to make their decisions very quickly. But... Aren't they also working under the supervision of senior doctors?
1: Well, here's here's how it works. If you're a resident, many attending physicians, everyone has an attending physician. but the feeling that you get is, don't bother me. Don't call mm. me at home unless somebody's dying. So there's a fear uh, from of the resident to actually call, a supervisor because it'll be perceived that, you know, they can't handle, you know, even if it's a caseload of 40 people that they're supervising and mind you, these are young doctors who just got out of medical schools because residency is only three to seven years. So you really haven't been doing it that long. And there's a feeling you get that you shouldn't call anyone for help unless somebody's dying. So there's not Do a feeling think, of, you know, let please call me at any time, you know, you have a question. That's not the feeling that exists.
0: Do you think uh, if they were able to work fewer hours and get a full night's sleep, that uh, might result in, in fewer errors?
1: Yes, I believe so. Now, there's if you talk to people on the other side, let's say, of this issue— there are the residents who feel like, you know, they want to have a decent, a decent ability to do their best for their patients. And then on the other side, you hear people, let's say from the head of the ACGME, which regulates overseas residents, will say, well, we need to train these young doctors to handle the continuity of care. So they need to be trained to work these long hours to follow a patient, to learn. But that's questionable whether they learn more if you're so sleep-deprived you can't think straight after 16 hours, whether you're really learning at all.
0: Are they offered any counseling?
1: They're not, and things are improving at some hospitals and medical schools around the country, but this is most recent, and they're really not. They're really not. So they're treated almost, you know, like robots, you know, with very little regard for their emotional well-being. So this this is the most important thing that we're trying to change, to see physicians and medical students as humans. And to be supportive as they work through the training system and become physicians. That's what they have nothing of. They feel totally trapped and alone without support.
0: So they're under financial stress, sleep deprived, surrounded by illness and death, and perhaps realizing that they've made an error that resulted in a patient's death. You can only imagine mm-hmm. the the effect that has on their mental health and their personal relationships. What about the divorce rate uh, beyond suicide? Uh, is Are the divorce rates high?
1: The divorce rate is high. And it's a feeling that they have that they can't share. They can't share. They don't want to burden the people around them. I remember my uncle, who was a surgeon in New Jersey, and you know when I first started researching this, I would ask him, "Have you ever heard about?" Because to me, he he would never complain, never. And um, I said to him, "You know what, what's going on?" He said, I, "I he had to come up with his own method." of coping in order to survive. And it did not include sharing any of this with his colleagues. It's a very solitary experience that, that they have to go through because they don't want to be perceived as being weak.
0: Over the years, I've heard about uh, the high incidence of drug abuse among doctors, uh, and it generally was explained by the fact that they have the, the power to write their prescriptions. They have more access to drugs. But uh, is that directly connected to this in your mind?
1: It is. They not only have the access, Leonard, they also have the knowledge about what's drugs to take so they um, they can and it starts in medical school where they make connections to doctors who can prescribe them things you know to stay awake and then get some sleep because you might have just an hour to sleep so you need something that's going to get you to sleep right away and if you're anxious or worried you know you need something and then you need something you know to get you up to get through your day. So that culture starts in medical school, this abuse of drugs, and then just continues through residency and into practice. So imagine as a patient, you know, do do we want a doctor who is self-medicating because they're afraid to get help because it might jeopardize their careers? So it's a, you know, it's a big, it's a big problem.
0: You mentioned the ACGME, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, and you interviewed uh, officials from that group, from the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges, and also the president of the American Medical Association. Now, uh, what are their takes on all of this?
1: Well, at at first, they didn't want to participate uh, in the documentary, but it was actually uh, Daryl Kirch from the AAMC who was the first one uh, to grant me an interview. So I really appreciate his uh, openness and willingness, knowing that it was a harsh look at this culture. Uh, So their position is, one, about the hours that, you know, they need to be conditioned to follow the continuity of care to that they are doing some things to address this issue. But they just feel that it's, um, you know, multifactorial. Remember, they've got like a pressure from hospital systems to keep these doctors, you know, working, chugging away, you know, like an assembly line. Um, So they have... They have many masters, you know, uh, legislatures. They've got hospitals that are struggling to survive, some of them. So it's difficult, but I think that you can't have a, a body like the ACGME overseeing residents as they do if they also have to answer to hospitals. Because if there's a problem, like someone's being bullied and they say, oh, just Report us, let us know. Of course you can't do that, because they're going to side with the hospital. So we need, and, you know, so an our... And, and we're talking in this case agency. about
0: residents who come from other countries, because we depend so much on foreign doctors these days.
1: Well, what's interesting in, in our country, that they increase the roles of medical schools knowing that baby boomers were aging and are going to require more care. But the number of residency slots has been frozen since the late 90s. So you've got this influx of foreign physicians that want to get into our system that are competing with this ballooning number of medical school graduates to get into the residency program. So that's why it's so easy to just get rid of someone who's not, you know, following along. And And that's why there's a lot of fear to report anything.
0: And we learned from your film that some medical schools and and, uh, hospitals fight attempts by state legislatures to address this issue. Why wouldn't they want it dealt with? Why wouldn't they want to come up with a better plan?
1: It's yeah, it's interesting. I was really shocked. We follow in the film John and Michelle Deal, who lost their son Kevin to yeah, suicide. Don't tell me too much about them
0: right now, because we're going to go to a break in a moment, and I want to talk about them in in great detail. But uh, ah. okay, but but finish that thought. <laughs>
1: Um, Well, yeah, we focused on St. Louis in Missouri and were quite shocked to find out how there was a concerted effort by medical schools not to pass legislation that would help support medical students.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Oh, help me, please, doctor, I'm damaged. There's a pain where there once was a heart.
1: It's sleeping, it's Can't you please tear
0: it out and preserve it right there in that jar? We are talking with Emmy Award-winning filmmaker robin simon about her latest film do no harm which is currently available on amazon prime video let's talk about some of the uh, the people you discuss in the in your film uh before we get to uh the one that you brought up uh you follow a doctor named hawkins Meekum uh from his Last year, a medical training through setting up a clinic in a small town in Idaho. How did you meet him?
1: I met Hawkins through Dr. Pamela Weibel, who I refer to mm-hmm. as uh, the Erin Brockovich of this issue. She yes. has been on a mission for you know years trying to expose the high rate of suicide among medical students and physicians what she refers to as the human rights abuses in our medical culture and so she heard from hawkins because she has you know a a blog that she does and she's you know runs a suicide hotline and so he called and a retreat as well yeah and she runs retreats as well yeah um so he so many people reach out to her you know, she, she's like ground zero for, for this issue. And he reached out to her um, after his suicide attempt during his third year of medical school. And so she knew about him, and then um, we were going to follow him, and the end of our film would have been a success story in graduating from medical school. He rebounded, and every and he made it through. But then a few months later when he got into a residency program, um, a small program in upstate New York, uh, we found out that he was in really bad shape, suicidal again, Mm -hmm. because medical training is so tough. Um, I mean, he's competent, caring, just, you know, the kind of doctor you would want. And, um, you know, just everything. You know, he had a a, wife, a young wife. They were together since high school. And after everything that started going on, he just started started to just, uh, you know, just, just spiral down. And she wound up, his wife wound up leaving him. And it got to such a point where he was contemplating suicide again, even knowing that we had been following him. So he, even knowing that, he was still so low it was the sleep deprivation it was just so you know so much going on at his residency so we went up to follow him and to see what was going on and yeah yeah he looked quite different as you see in the film just you know just totally you know depleted just totally
0: did depleted he,
1: and and depressed
0: Did he tell you why he had attempted the suicide was it just simply Depression, or were there other factors?
1: In medical school, uh, it was many things. It was the sleep deprivation. It was the isolation. It was the bullying. He, you know, he was severely bullied. Uh, the pimping, you know, for, and for people who are, you know, very sensitive and caring, uh, you know, it it really weighs on you. And then the final straw was the debt the debt that he was covering and, you know, wondering, you know, is, is medicine right for me, but how can you turn away when you've got so much debt? And Maybe I'm a burden to my family. Maybe, maybe it's, it's better for them, you know, if I'm not here. And what he describes in the film is you know, like a tunnel vision, you know, that this, this is the solution. If I don't have a solution, it's just going to keep coming back. So that was his attempt uh during medical school and luckily you know with the support of his wife um uh, he and other people around him he recovered uh and uh was able to complete medical school and there was an advisor at, at his medical school that helped him get this internship you know not a prestigious one a small one the first time they had a residency program there and within a few months the sleep deprivation Seeing people die on a regular basis, like he lost three patients and uh, within a a very short period of time. And the response of his attendings and and the people there was just move on to the next, keep going. Just no, no support at all. And he he just couldn't, you know, it it just wore him down, just wore him down. So he left after his first year of residency, you know, it's, it's like, is this worth it? He, he, he left the program and, uh, went home and then, well, you see what happens, you know, in the film to him after that.
0: Did Dr. Weibel also consider committing suicide? Is that why she's gotten, uh, become such a, a strong advocate she
1: was said to me that she was suicidal after medical school when she was forced to work in this assembly line system of medicine where she felt like, you know, she was a drug pusher, you know, like pushing pills and labs and tests on patients. And, you know, many physicians at clinics have you know, quotas that, that they have to reach. You know, and and they have, you know, bean counters that come around every couple of weeks to make sure, you know, your performance is up there, you know, because it's a business. So she just, you know, just felt this sinking feeling working in this assembly line method of care instead of what she wanted and what most caring doctors want, which is to have a connection with their patients. So physicians are angry at their patient, at their doctor saying, you know, oh, I feel like, you know, I'm being, you know, put through, you know, an assembly line. And they don't understand that physicians are caught in this system as well. And that's what I hope and it's sort of like a side effect of, of sharing this film with the general audiences is that they say, oh, I, I didn't realize that they were as unhappy as we are. And they are. Sure just as trapped in this system as we are.
0: Now, okay, now let's talk about the Deedles. Uh, Along with Dr. Michum, you follow Mm -hmm. the story of John and Michelle Deedle, whose son Kevin committed suicide just a few months shy of his graduation from medical school. So could you tell us a bit about Kevin?
1: Kevin was, like Hawkins, uh, very caring, dedicated. His... uh, mentor said, you know, I just knew he was going to be a great doctor. And um, he just, you know, became very disillusioned as many do by the system. And he attempted suicide. And once he did and recovered from that, he told his parents, you know, that my career is over because this is always going to be on my record. I'm not going to get into a residency program. It's just going to follow me around for the rest of my life and um, they felt blindsided because he was an adult so they didn't have access to his records and so they weren't told by his medical school what was really going on so they they they, they felt like they couldn't do anything to help him, and so when he did die by suicide uh, they were angry angry feeling, you know, something more could have been done. There should be programs in place to help these young kids. You know, let's not wait till they are suffering from sleep deprivation and depression and they're suicidal to come up with programs to treat them. Let's look at the programs to see what we can do before to prevent this. So they, after dealing and while dealing with their group, Brief they teamed up with uh, Dr. Keith Fredericks, who was a, a physician but also a state legislature a state legislator in Missouri and they worked to propose to propose legislation that would come up with programs to help young doctors but also to create a program that would make reporting depression and anxiety transparent. So when a family would go to look at what medical schools their son or daughter would be applying to, that they would know the depression rates and anxiety rates at that medical school. Because that's the first step to improving things. If you don't want your medical school to have high rates of depression, you're going to do something about it. But if you can hide that information, well, there's no real motivation to fix what people don't know.
0: Now, Kevin, uh, didn't succeed in his first suicide attempt. Uh, and you would have thought that that would have gotten him past it, but then he did kill himself. Yeah. Yeah. Was it for yeah, the same he... reasons or, or, uh, at this point, was uh, was he just uh, going to have to deal with suicidal thoughts for the rest of his life? Do we know?
1: It comp- it compounded. So the first reason why he attempted was just dealing with all of the things that we talked about. You know, the sleep deprivation, just feeling disillusion, uh, all of that. But then, what really put him over the edge to completing? was the fact that he felt that there was no path forward for a future in medicine because of the stigma of mental health that that he would be marked, you know, for the rest of his life uh, as a suicidal doctor, and he wouldn't be able to live his dream. So that's what really pushed him, you know, to actually complete maybe the first attempt was a cry for help. Hmm. But the the second attempt and when he did take his life was just make it stop. You know, I want I want out. And his parents truly believe that if there were programs in place, that he might be with us today.
0: Both Kevin Deedle and Hawkins Meekham were in training to be DOs. Is that Doctors of osteopathy.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Or osteopathy, osteopathy <laughs> right? Osteopathy.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the same. You know, it's it, they're they're medical. You know, MDs and DOs. They go through the same training. Uh, DOs focus a little bit more on um, you know the, a holistic approach to the body. But Preventative they, medicine. It's, the, it, it's, the, it's the same training, but it's just a slightly different philosophical approach to the training. So uh, but but when we look at the suicide rate among medical students and physicians, it's not it's not weighted for DOs versus MDs. And it's also, you know, we look at physicians who died by suicide, med students at, at the top schools in the country, Stanford, Harvard, uh, UCLA. So, uh, it's you know, we're not saying, oh, it's just, well, these, you know, are some people young at these uh, less prestigious schools. No, we, we see this happening even at the most prestigious schools. And it's interesting, Leonard, when I started with the film tour, you know, the position of some of these um, Ivy League medical schools said, well, they should be grateful to be here. We don't need to show this film uh, because, you know, these people are grateful to be here. But but that's just so short-sighted. And there are so many people within the ranks that uh, are dealing with these issues, even at these schools Uh, And and feel like, you know, it's something wrong with them. It's their fault. You know, maybe they are the weak link. You know, when we're trying to say it's not you, it's this system.
0: Dr. Mika became friendly with the Deedles after Kevin's death. How did he even find them to, to contact them and meet with them?
1: Pamela Weibel was the person who connected them. So she had known about Hawkins uh, from her earlier conversations with him. And then uh, she heard from John and Michelle Deal. And when she went to meet them and they described Kevin, Pamela Weibel thought, wow, it sounds so much like Hawkins. It would be great for you two to meet each other. Because... Maybe it would help in healing for both sides. So uh, that's actually the first shoot for the film was their meeting. And it was only a few months after Kevin had died. So the feelings were still so raw for John and Michelle. And um, they welcomed Hawkins, you know, into their home and it was a chance for as you see in the film for Michelle to ask the questions that she would desperately want to ask her son but couldn't and that was why hmm. you know we you come from you know you come from a great family I thought we were great parents you told us we were great parents why would you do this and through hawkins uh, telling them, you know, it, it's not about you. I love my wife. I love my family. It's, it's this tunnel vision that I'm hurting, and I don't see any way to stop the hurt. And so maybe you, the family, would be better off if I wasn't around to deal with this the hurt that i that doesn't seem to go away and nobody seems to be able to help with. And so it, it was healing for John and Michelle to hear this. And they talked about the stigma of medicine. It's like if you don't feel like you're at the top, you shouldn't exist. That feeling, that level of pressure was healing for them to hear because as Michelle says in the film, I just can't wrap my mind around it as a parent to hear you say, you know, if I'm not at the top of my game, I shouldn't exist. But many in medicine feel that way. You Um, go ahead, finish your (laughs) thoughts. No, it was quite a scene. I'm just remembering right now, you know, shooting that scene. Um, how everyone, you know, crew and all of us it was just so moving. Uh-huh. And we only had wished, you know, that if Hawkins and Kevin could have met and s- formed, you know, sort of like a little, you know, support system for each other, maybe that would help.
0: You said earlier that uh, you were doing all of this before the pandemic hit. Have the added pressures of having to deal with the high number of COVID-19 cases filling our hospitals exacerbated the situation for these already stressed out medical professionals? And, and I want to include nurses as well, because we've been hearing about a rather high uh, death rate for nurses, and um, some of them are killing themselves as well.
1: Yeah, one thing that the pandemic has done was to bring this problem to light. Um, you know, we, we don't in, in the national media, you know, normally report on suicide in general, mm-hmm. uh, but there was a report. Dr. Lorna Breen, who was mm-hmm. the subject of you know me- media, as you probably know, and and
0: I was about to bring her up the fact that, yeah. I read the fact I read that her that obituary in the New York Times time. in, uh, this past April. Yeah.
1: It, and, and many follow-up stories have been done. So, uh, but but we've never heard about it before. But they've been going on for a long time. The opening scene of Do No Harm is a young doctor from Mount Sinai in New York who jumped from the roof of a building of a Mount Sinai building in her white coat, and we didn't hear about that in the media. So, but there are so many. I mean, just recently since COVID, there were three doctors at a California, I don't want to say which one, hospital uh, suicides since March. And no one's talking about that. I mean, it's just happening all over, but we're now a little bit more focused on frontline healthcare workers and hailing them as heroes, but it just, It can't stop there because what they're experiencing is really traumatic. And so if they don't get the support that they need, Hmm. emotional support, what will be the impact not only for them and their families, but also for patients after this? So, you know, people need to look at this as a mental health, as, as a public health crisis, a holistic
0: health crisis. I'm pretty much out of time, but I just wanted to mention a little more about Lorna Breen. Uh, she was a 49-year-old emergency room doctor who had contracted coronavirus from treating COVID-19 patients. She went back to work after she uh, seemed to be uh, regain her health uh, at New York Presbyterian Hospital, but it was just for a week and a half. And, uh, and then uh, they sent her home again. She Uh, committed suicide while she was staying with her family in Charlottesville, Virginia. So obviously the depression remained.
1: Terrible story. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on these physicians. The physicians, are there's a lot of pressure for them to stay at work, and they're working very long hours. And they're also, because of uh, COVID, you know, the infectiousness of the disease, they're often the only ones with the patient now in the room when they you know, take their last mm. breath. Before you know, you're know, you at least surrounded by family members, but now it's often the nurse or the physician who is spending their last moments on earth with their patients. So uh, the, the emotional toll is just tremendous and hospitals don't have mental health programs in place like peer support, like anonymous phone counseling. There are some doctors themselves, psychiatrists, that are doing their own things to help hotlines, you know, to help physicians. But there's no real effort by the hospitals themselves to offer this kind of counseling.
0: We have to leave it there. Unfortunately, Robin Simon's film, her latest film is Do No Harm, available on Amazon Prime Video. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been eye opening. Thank you. And that, Thank you for and that. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn who prepared today's interview. If you're new to our program and you'd like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. Plus, you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, Leonard Lopate at large. And if you'd like to comment on any of our shows, make a suggestion, or if you just want to say hello, my email address is Leonard Lopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I'd like to take just a couple of minutes to ask you to support the station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable uh, by calling uh, 516-620-3602 or going online to give to WBAI.org to keep this unique in-depth content. We bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take foundation grants, run ads. So uh, whether you tune in regularly to Linda paid at Large, or even if you've just discovered our show, we hope that you'll give us that call 516-620-3602 or go online to give2wbai.org. To and one great way to support WBAI without having to plunk down a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy, listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on the show. But whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is to um, to. Make that contribution in the name of Lentadolpate at Large. And my great thanks to all of our listeners who have so far. If you haven't already, again, one more time, five one six six two zero three six zero two. Go online at give2wbai.org. Uh, we're off tomorrow, but we hope that you'll join us on Wednesday when our favorite home repair experts, Alvin and Laura Tubell, will return to our show to take your calls on maintenance and construction in the age of COVID. See you then.